Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. As a project becomes more successful, it almost always gets larger. Over time, teams usually get larger as well. Eventually, this means that the previous structure of the application becomes insufficient and needs to be refactored. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to handle large application refactorings. There is more to this than simply scaling up a normal refactoring from issues with timing to office politics. We're going to dive into all of those. But before we get started, Will, what's been refactoring you lately? Well, uh, it turns out if you've got two DHCP servers on the same network and you're not careful with how you allocate subnets and they overlap by one, you Mm -hmm. have a gremlin in your network that is awful hard to find. So I found that gremlin this week and I was not happy. Because I really thought I had laid everything out. You know, I, I really spent the time on the calculations. What I did, though, is because, you know, you're saying that you need this many bits. I'm like, okay, take two to that power. And that's the number right above the, the upper bound. And I forgot to subtract one. So it was literally, it was a typical programmer off by one problem. But, uh, you know, just having stuff randomly break and not being able to figure out what, what's wrong. Because, you know, the, the lease on the DHCPs was also too, the IP addresses was too short because I was testing stuff and I forgot to reset it. So yeah, that's what I've been dealing with this week. It was super frustrating. And it was, I was not happy when I found that. Now I probably should have actually like split that off into a separate, you know, completely separate subnet. Well, different like IP ad- address range where there was no chance of an overlap, but I thought I had it correctly. It's like DHCP on a Mac, Mac VLAN and DHCP on the, on the router. So I had one for all my Docker containers and one for all my other stuff. So yeah, that was real cute. So how about you? <laughs> so I uh, was watching some Doctor Who the other night and uh, was like, I want some fish fingers and custard. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you'll understand the reference. And uh, so that was you know, Saturday. So Sunday, I'm like, hey, you know, I'll, today's my day to go to the store. Go to the store. They don't sell custard at the grocery store. They sell frozen custard, but not custard. So I was like, I wonder how hard it is to make custard. Looked it up. It's actually not that difficult. So he treated milk. Yeah. I made some custard. Kind of fun. If you ferment that, it makes it makes yogurt. <laughs> True. Give or take. It's close enough. It made a lot. Like a lot. Way, way more than I needed for fish fingers and custard. I actually had some uh, today at lunchtime too. And I'll probably be eating on that for another few days. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else is going on. I spoke at Atlanta DevCon this past weekend. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I liked getting up at 3 a.m. to drive down to Atlanta and be there by 8. That was actually wasn't that bad. I get up around 4.45 anyway most days, so it wasn't too early. And uh, been doing some research on uh, headless CMS, content management systems for building static websites. Went to a talk on that and was like, oh, hey, this site that I am planning on building for a client, I can actually do as a static site and use a headless CMS. That's really cool. 
And then last, just today, I found out what we're going to start practicing in a couple of weeks for the worship team. And guess what? It's Christmas music. (laughs) Might seem early for the non-musicians, but we've got a couple of months before we start playing Christmas music. And so we start practicing it now so that we're ready for it when we start. You don't want to wait until like a week or two before to go, oh, hey, let me learn these songs. Because Christmas music ain't easy, y'all. Like, really. Actually, I was kind of proud of myself. There's one of the songs has a few split measures in it. So it's like, you know, you play one chord for half the measure and a different chord for the other half. Well, then at the very end of the verse, there was like two chords and they just had like a parentheses and a one beside them. Like, what does that mean? Because I hadn't seen it before in a chord chart. So, uh, I'm playing along with the recording and I realized, oh, that means you play one count of those. So it's like half a measure. You like one, two, and then you go into the next measure. And so once I figured that out and started doing it, it actually sounded pretty cool. And I'm like, wow, this is, I don't know. It was just really neat to like actually figure that out, like without having to ask someone. So I was just a lot of fun. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. So we want to welcome our new patron, uh, Amy, who also sent us a message. Hi, BJ and Will. I'm a mid-level developer from England, and I just wanted to send you guys a big thank you. I started listening to your podcast around six months ago, and it's really helped me in my career. You give such great tips that I can apply to my own situation, and I've noticed that I'm more motivated and equipped to achieve my goals since I began listening to you. All of your episodes have helped me in some way, but I particularly enjoy the non-technical ones such as the Enneagram Types and Self-Improvement episodes. You're my favorite dev podcast. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. That really makes my day. I like that. Saving money is hard, especially when you get off by one errors on your uh, routing. (laughs) I don't know that it cost me any money, but this may have some more gray hairs in my beard now. You thought you were going to have to buy a new router at one point. I think it was a slightly different issue, but... Well, this was a firmware issue. <laughs> yeah, it's those Orbeez. They're, they are what they are. Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, his focus is on helping you to not only establish a real plan, but take action on that plan so that you can live your best life. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. And with the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Speaking of paying for itself, Level Up has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. So if you are just starting off as a junior developer or you're a curmudgeon senior developer getting ready to retire, Lucas has a plan for you. Lucas is also a fiduciary for his clients, which means he's not here to sell you a product, but to help guide you to a better financial situation. So guys, you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics you probably face and interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their careers. You can also learn a lot more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. So it's very hard to build a large software project without having to undergo major refactorings every so often. Whether it's due to changes in your platform, changes to the market, 
team growth, regulatory changes, or just dealing with an ever-increasing amount of customers and their data, going back however long they have it, uh, at some point, your current approach is going to become insufficient and untenable. When that happens, you may be tempted to just rewrite the application. This is nearly universally a mistake, however. Uh, Pulling off a solid rewrite is almost always several times as difficult as a major refactoring, as long as your code's not complete crap. And it always takes longer than you think it will. And given how awful a large refactoring can be, this should generally make you want to avoid a rewrite. Yeah, that said, a large-scale refactoring is still very difficult and a very risky endeavor. While your team is busy on refactoring, your competition isn't sitting still. You'll also be navigating political problems. If people who built the current system are still there, you'll need to be careful not to alienate them during this process. And there are political problems with the larger business as well. People outside of technology typically have a hard time understanding why software refactorings need to happen. They don't understand why you couldn't just get it right the first time. Most people outside of tech don't realize how much every decision is really about dealing with trade-offs in the present rather than the best long-term practice or even how often that changes. Also, the difficulty of dealing with scaling is almost never linear. You know, having 10 times as many records as you did before can often result in the system taking 30 to 100 times longer to process that request. However, there is a little bit of hope. Uh, You can conduct a large-scale refactoring of an application over time without excessive risk and without alienating your team and the rest of the business. Several factors come into play. First, information diffusion throughout the team has got to be respected. Any change that you make is going to take time to be accepted and for everyone to get used to it. This process cannot really be rushed. Second, you still have to get real work done for your stakeholders. Uh, The rest of the world is not sitting still, and the rest of the world is responsible for paying you. So you kind of need that to work. Third, you have to manage team morale and cohesion really, really carefully. Large refactorings are very disruptive, and they require that you change code that other team members have written. People get attached to it. This can be a problem. Finally, you have to resist the urge to change everything that's wrong about the system. It's really tempting, but that will expand beyond your ability to control it, and it will make you fail. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the things that you can do to make a large refactoring safer and maybe even a little less painful. Notice that we aren't asserting that we can make the process safe or painless. Anybody who tells you that is selling something. Princess. Princess Bride reference. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you catch that or not. Yep, yep. I love it. The process is inherently risky and dangerous from a variety of angles, and it can be even more dangerous to avoid a refactoring. However, it can be done. So let's talk about how to do it. Yeah. So step number one is to actually start with a plan for the long term, broken into phases, and share it with the team. The trick here is the team needs to actually be consulted when you're doing a massive restructure of the code base. You don't want this decision handed down from on high, even if the larger team trusts the people making the decision. 
this is just a breeding ground for conflict and you should not create it. You also need to create things into phases. Like real work will be done between the phases. You can't stop progress on the software for six months while you play the refactoring games. It's like the reindeer games. You still have to provide value. One thing that I have just going through our system that we're actively building right now, it's not even in production yet, is I've noticed a few things that, oh, hey, when we initially built this, it solved a problem. But now looking at the larger system, this is not as efficient as it could be. Or, hey, there's a better way of doing this. Or we change something, that sort of stuff. And so I've been sort of, I've got a list that I keep in sort of a tech debt story that we can pull and build other smaller stories out of. So it's kind of like that phase thing. Now, a lot of people are going to hear what we just said and they're going to object. They're going to say, this is waterfall. Okay, so there's a huge difference between agile and simply lacking a plan. Plus, in this situation, you don't have a feedback loop between development and the stakeholders, right? The stakeholders are really not involved here. Development is the stakeholder. So it's really easy to go off the rails because you're, you're high on your own supply, essentially. So your plan for a large refactoring really needs to be thought of as a virtual stakeholder. It's you're, You write the plan, and that plan is a thing that is, we're checking against this and we're validating against this so that we have a feedback loop. Because we don't have one, so we got to create it. Yeah. No, this mechanism is necessary because a lot of developers have a hard time avoiding scope creep especially when they're fixing things for their own benefit. And you really want to cut this tendency out before it even starts. And like I said, this is sort of why I have that list because I'll get in and I'll be working on something and I'll be like, oh, while I'm in here, I can just fix this. It's like, no, that is scope creep for the story that I'm on. I will go put it in this list and then we can pull from that list at times when we've got like, oh, hey, you know, we're not, not working on something or something like that. So the next critical thing to do is to use a strategy of disrupt and stabilize. We talked about this earlier, but you typically don't want to do a large refactoring in one shot, either with the entire team or with just part of it. You don't want to be unproductive in the eyes of the people who write your paycheck for a long period of time with no visibility into what you're actually doing. Right. That's a big thing. If only part of your team is doing the refactoring You also need to account for how long it's going to take for knowledge to kind of diffuse across the rest of your team and become ingrained within them. Like, and it kind of depends on the size of your team here too. Like if you've got three people on your team and one person's working on refactoring, it's different than if you've got like a 30 person team and 10 of them are working on refactoring. If you change too much all at once, your productivity will fall through the floor as you've essentially erased much of your colleagues' hard-won experience. This also helps, like, one of the bigger things that I did recently was in our uh, our front end, because we're doing Angular for this application, and I just noticed, hey, it is really hard to find stuff. Even though we've named it well, it's still like, oh, hey, this is using this component and this component, and oh, it's just like, Because we had all the components in one folder for components. I'm like, hey, why don't we... I'll come in here and put these into subfolders. And so it's like, all right, hey, here's the ones that are only related to this page or this page. 
And then here's the ones that go like are shared across them. And oh my goodness, it was a huge refactoring and everyone else on the team was continuing to develop. And so every time they did a completed a, a merge, I had to pull that in and fix that. Yep. We had that with our narwhal extensions. Yeah. And, you know, trying to get stuff into, you know, into barrels appropriately and split up the app. And yeah, it was a big effort for just, you know, one or two people. Oh, yeah. But they were on it for months, it seemed like. So what I ended up doing was just waiting until I think I came in early one day, like an hour or two early, and just knocked the rest of it out before anyone could throw up another or complete another PR. And I'm just like, all right, I'm going to knock this out. I'm going to get my PR out there. And then y'all got to deal with it. If you do something between like its completion, you got to deal with it. But once everyone kind of got used to the new structure, everyone liked it better. Yeah. But it takes a while for that to happen because like people, even something that's better, people don't like it immediately. Now, we also recommend the phase approach you know, that we talked about earlier with other work interspersed in between for a very good reason because people are paying you. This gives you the, the time for your team to start adjusting to small single changes without everything being disrupted and everybody being confused. And you're still getting work done. So it's, it's getting two purposes kind of handled at the same time. Also, keep in mind that your team will probably be changing as this occurs. Even smaller teams, our, our teams changed a few times recently. With people coming on board, people leaving, sometimes they restructure. Sometimes another team at your company will have people leave and they have to restructure everything in the, like, the whole department just because it's like, all right, well, we had three developers and a lead on this team and now we've got a junior developer because several of them like either left or got promoted or something like that. And that happens. Well, let him do the refactoring. Everybody will learn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. The next one, test-driven development with architectural tests. Use the test as your work checklist. That is a brilliant idea. If you want to make architectural change, write a test so that the current state of the system is a failure and the new state is a success. And that is true test-driven development right there. You'll need to write the tests in a way that you catch broad categories of problems and fail if the architectural test suite is run. Right. And you're not going to run them all the time, right? No. This is just as, as you're going along. And you know, once you've completed a portion of the refactoring, the architectural test for that portion should then be wired into your build process and run every time. That way your team doesn't backslide. That's, that's kind of the, the deal there is you're, it's a regression control on the process. Because the worst thing about a big refactoring is it's like half your team, either when they started on what they're doing, your stuff wasn't in there yet, or they haven't learned it yet, or they forgot. And so you're, you're constantly fighting rot, essentially, if you don't do this. Now, if you can't figure out how to write an architectural test for the work you're doing, then you need to take some time and figure it out. Tests are a useful communication tool among the people implementing a change and can make your intent more clear to the broader team. I like to look at tests to see, hey, what did you actually do in the code? If I have to go in and change something or if I even 
not for refactorings, but if I'm pulling a story that touches something that someone else built, first thing I do is go look at their tests. Yeah. And if you have tests that, that tell you stuff about naming conventions or about what things are injected into constructors, you go, mm-hmm. hey, I don't ever want, I don't know, the entity framework database context injected in a constructor of this namespace because these are all command handlers and they need to be dealing with a repository or something. You can enforce that. That's kind of the idea there. And this was actually something that we did. I say we did. My boss, I think, is the one that wrote the architectural test. Now, I don't know for sure, but um, it wasn't me. I came up with yeah. this idea. I just like totally ripped it off because I thought it was really slick. That's a good idea. Yeah. So next, keep the entire team in the loop as you go. As you begin and complete each phase of the work, you're going to want to brief the rest of your team on what you're doing. While you can and should do this in a meeting, don't rely on a meeting as the only way to convey this information. Yeah, or a recording of a meeting, right? There's going to have to probably be some hands-on showing people and actually taking time because people aren't going to have questions when you show them stuff. They're going to have questions when they have to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you know, people tune out in meetings. Like this is a a factor of human behavior that you're not going to fix. So you, you got to understand that it's going to take several tries for stuff to get through. And the meeting is the first try. And be available for those questions. That's one thing that I do with my team all the time. I had a call with our QA today because she was confused about the DevOps stuff was being weird and I hopped on and helped her out with that. But yeah, like seriously, my team knows if they have any questions about anything just to reach out. And if I can't hop on a call right away with them, I'll let them know when I can. That is a a key thing here is just being available for your team. Yeah. And you also need to have written documentation that's kept up to date somewhere. People, Mm -hmm learn things in different ways. You know, some people can learn by having a conversation or seeing it. Some people have to kind of run into the issue a few times and some people can read a doc and you're going to want to have all of those things so that people can gravitate towards whatever seems to work best for them just so that it's easy on them. I know the learning styles thing is kind of pseudoscience, but like there's an element of something like that here. It's more like learning preferences is probably the the case. Make it as easy as you can. Mm Mm-hmm. Finally, under here, get frequent feedback from the team because this is going to be very useful in avoiding conflict. You want concerns raised early rather than six months into the process when the stakes are higher on everybody's concern. And this is why you do it in in phases too, but because you can get that feedback faster. It tightens that loop. Getting buy-in through discussion is a great way to facilitate this. So speaking of the phase thing uh, that you said, uh, break Mm -hmm. each phase of work into multiple stories and then spread them through the team. Mm -hmm. Smaller stories are usually easier to handle just across the board than massive stories. Oh, yeah. Right, because with a massive story, if nothing else, you just got a giant merge at the end and a giant area that has to be tested and documented and whatever else is in your process. If it's a small story, that's it's it's less difficult. And if you have a smaller story, it's also easier to control scope creep because you clearly define what is to be changed and what's out of bounds. Whereas with a big story, it's like, oh, I'll just kind of fix this so that it, these two things are blah, blah, blah. 
versus uh, you know a little bit tighter because you are going to want to be tight on this. Mm-hmm. Also, it makes it easier to show your progress to the stakeholders. You can say we're through 72% of the work on this refactoring, or you can say we're through a bunch of it. Not sure how much is left. Yeah. And oh, by the way, the end is, is going away from us like a sliding frame because that's what they hear when you say that. You know, if you're running a large refactoring as a developer, then you're going to have to do some of the work that a project manager might otherwise be handling if you have those or Scrum Master might be handling or a PO might be handling. You know, the development team being the primary stakeholder for the work, you got to take extra steps to create accountability and transparency because you probably don't have those structures there. Mm-hmm. If you're a senior or up, we should probably start learning this lower than that. But if you're a senior developer or up, you really need to understand what it is that the project managers, the product owners, scrum masters, business analysts, like those members of your team, what they do anyway. Even if you're not working on a refactoring, this is something that you just need to know. Because I can tell you from experience, year and a half now of, of being a lead developer, when you get to a lead position, you have to know that stuff. Well, and if you don't know, you're going to find out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is very true. Yeah. Just whatever you do, don't leave things open-ended. Uh, work needs to be tightly scoped or it will just continue on and on and on and on as the scope just creeps on out. Will has heard developers characterize people. <laughs> it says I've, dude. I don't know. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's all right, man. That was a note I put in there. Yeah. But uh, who will spend a million dollars to automate a dollar? Yeah, it really is an apt metaphor because a developer will spend a million dollars to automate a dollar themselves because we're focused on the automation, not the dollar. <laughs> and you got to get that focus in there. You get going so hard on the, it's what, what is that phrase? Uh, we're so focused on could we that we didn't think about should we? Yeah. Kind of thing. Actually, I'll, I will be honest. Okay, so this is a little self brag here. Our product owner complimented me the other day on uh, how I, uh, I tend to think in terms of the user. And she's like, you see cool stuff and you're like, yeah, but that's not going to be effective. I'm like, well, no. So, yeah, you want to get those kind of compliments from your product owners. Yeah, you really do. And you don't want them to, to hate you for pulling the team off on a massive refactoring that was endless and screwed up the whole product direction while you were doing it. Because I've seen that one. But speaking of screwing up the entire product direction, you need to handle one issue at a time. And don't scrape, you know, scope creep this. Don't scrape cope this. There you go. Got tongue-tied. Yeah, well, I was, I was scope-creeped, right? I was reading as I was enunciating. It can be really tempting when you're trying to fix one issue to do things like change your project library structure, build process, use of repositories, dependency injection, all that stuff at the same time. Because, you know, you move one piece and you're like, well, this would be better if this other piece was moved. Well, if it still works, don't move it yet. Because when you do this, you are scope creeping and it's a situation where the people who are most responsible for cracking the whip on you to say, don't do that are not there. Um, and they don't see this like really wide project scopes with poor accountability will bite you very, very quickly and very, very badly. I've been there. Don't do that. This is also the reason we're suggesting the 
uncharacteristic approach of intense planning before you start the refactoring. Basically, it allows you to pick logical starting points with few dependencies so that you don't get into the code and find five other things you need to change before you can even start the work you're doing. And I'm just going to tell you, if you do that, then you need to stop this current refactoring and go back and refactor your story. Yeah, replan and all that. I mean, this is also the reason you use testing spikes, right? And you go, I'm going to try to bring a repository over to this other library and see what happens. And I'm not going to keep that code. I'm just going to do it to see what breaks and what the actual dependencies are versus what I thought they were. Because the other thing you'll find too is as you do this, you'll find that you are terrible at this kind of planning because like we don't think like this most of the time when we're, we're developing, you know, not at this kind of level. And so this avoids this, this sort of problem, I guess, is the, is the best way I would say it. Now, this may mean that your code base, well, it does mean that your code base is going to be in a weird state for a while, either in regards to the way that dependencies are handled or even with multiple approaches for the same task or the same kind of task side by side. You know, they call that a lava flow pattern. That's okay as long as you eventually get it into a consistent state before you start the next phase, right? Like if you have a lava flow pattern and it stays that way forever, it's a barren wasteland. If it doesn't stay that way forever, it's white. So next, have documentation. There's more to it, but I just want to say that. Describing the general direction of your refactoring and keep it up to date. I I think the big thing here is have documentation because how many of us have done refactoring and not documented? Yeah, well, here's the other thing. and And I understand that you know this well because with a podcast, you come to this anyway, but this is something I think a lot of people don't get because they don't have to do all this the stuff that we do. Thinking is not a tool for writing. Writing is a tool for thinking. Mm-hmm. And when you write the thing down and you have to put it in a way that it makes sense, there is so much crap that you will find that you're like, man, I didn't think about that at all. And you'll feel really, really stupid. But I tell you, it feels a lot more stupid when you don't write it down and you don't catch that until it hits you in the face. Because I've done that one. <laughs> As we've been doing this for over seven years now, we have learned and grown in because I remember in the very early days of this podcast, you would put stuff on on an outline and I'd be like, I have no idea what that even is, especially when I was like learning or a junior and it was some acronym or something from like 15 years ago that I had not ever seen because it was it was both before and after my time. Back in my day, we went AWOL on the code. Yeah, stuff like that. Okay. So, (laughs) yeah, basically. Now, at the end of each phase, you need to have updated documentation available to show what you did and what the new approach is. Not only does this help you onboard people and educate your existing team, but keeping the documentation up to date helps to avoid miseducating your team. Yeah. And by the way, when, when people get miseducated, do you know what they do? Do you know? They find a Mr. Education? Wait, no. They talk more. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) It's sort of like being miseducated makes you want to be a professor. Sort of like getting Ebola makes you want to get on a cruise ship. Like there's something there that's just a really, like it'll seem that way. I promise. You should also note that the documentation should include documentation of further refactorings that you intend to complete next. Uh, This helps your team by showing what's coming, 
allowing time to build new code to conform to upcoming standards where possible, right? Like if your team is warned that, hey, we're going to stop doing things this way and they can stop doing it this way right now, they will because they want their code to be right. They don't want it to be messed with. Well, that's the best way to protect their baby is to go, well, if this is irrelevant for the situation you're trying to fix, let them save face, let them save ego to your advantage. Well, this documentation also serves to help reduce conflict or at least clarify things when conflict occurs. It does this by clearly stating what you're doing rather than relying on someone else's interpretation of another person's statement during a meeting when very few people were actually paying attention. Because we know that that happens. Don't let yourself be surprised by constants. That's one thing that we mm-hmm. like to drill in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of constants, you also need to create some constants. One of those is regular briefings with uninvolved team members to explain changes. If your work can't easily be broken up and part of the team is going to be sequestered to handle that work, a representative of the people doing that work needs to basically regularly report back to the larger team and ask for feedback. You know, tell them what you're doing, what you've moved, what you've reworked, why you did it. Why is really important here. Don't just go, oh, we did it. And you just got to deal with it. Uh, the why is probably one of the most important things. The why and the feedback, it's amazing. I know I've talked about this quite a bit with the leadership stuff, but it's amazing when you give people just a chance to have some feedback, how much more they will get on board. Even if they disagree with you, the fact that they've been able to say, I don't agree with this, they'll still get on board with it more easily. It's a weird thing about human nature. And some of them will tell you you're wrong and you'll find out you are. That's true too. Yeah. And it feels a lot better when it's like, oh, okay, we can course correct here and, and mm-hmm. this is way easier than getting all the way to the end and feeling dumb. It's better an oversight than an overflight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Exactly. So besides informing the team, the goal of these regular feedback sessions is to avoid creating a rift on your team between the people involved in the refactoring and everybody else. Yeah, I wrote in the outline the dirty huddled masses outside because there is like when you have a dynamic where a group of people are doing a thing and they inflict that the consequences on that of that thing onto everyone else, it feels like they're higher up even if they're not. Like people will get that impression. Oh, your management's favorite because you did this refactoring. It's like refactoring sucks. Why would I want to be that guy? I'm not higher up for doing that. It's just, I didn't dodge well. If you've broken it down into phases and then broken those phases down into stories, it's, well, I did this part, but just wait because you're going to get the next one. (laughs) Yeah. And you definitely don't want to, you don't want to create that hierarchy where it shouldn't be. Because that hierarchy is not useful to any managerial goal Mm -hmm. for the most part. There's probably situations where it is, but I've never been in one. It's just a conflict breeder. So yeah, don't do that. And after a long phase of refactoring work, consider shuffling members onto and out of the refactoring team for the next round, like you suggested. This helps with buy-in and it also avoids the situation where a few powerful people are seen as pushing the rest of the team around while making arbitrary decisions. And it educates the team and it gets them talking. Like everybody has to talk and, and interact. If you, if you don't do that, the isolation will really screw stuff up. This is a really good way to just make sure that the people doing the refactoring aren't making arbitrary decisions so that it's, it's part of the overall process. Yeah. I mean, I've seen situations where somebody was like, oh, I want to use this naming convention for variables. 
And if it's a single, it's a scalar. It should be the whatever. So if you got a loop and you're looping over, you can't call it I. It's got to be called the index. And I guess it's the J index if it's an inner loop. I'm not sure exactly. I never did see that guy do that. But this was something that a dude did, you know, and it was several whatevers if it was a list. Wow. Right. And it irritated everybody else. And I was like, this is Hungarian notation, but not as good. Like it's less informative than the old, was it M underscore Z PTR? Yeah. ZSTR PTR, whatever, you know, you know mm-hmm. module level pointer to a zero terminated string thing that we used to do back in the day. But one guy pushed this. And so everybody ended up doing it and having to put up with it. And you really want to avoid that. Like you actually, you want the conflict to happen here. Yeah. Well, if the conflict happens here, then the conflict doesn't happen months from now when it's already done and people are going, this is ridiculous. And you have to go refactor the refactor. Yeah. Or you just have a bunch of people go, you know, this is the last straw, right? Like never underestimate the fact that you don't know how many straws are already on the camel's back. Right. Now, the other thing that you should do, and this is something that people forget, is you need to have small celebrations for finishing when you hit a milestone uh, in, you know, in this process. So when you complete a feature set for your normal stakeholders, there is going to be some feedback about a job well done, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some people's stakeholders just complain. That's what they do. But, you know, like most of them, you get some kind of feedback. You know that, okay, this helped somewhere because, hey, you paid me to do it. There's a reason you did it. That's the trust relationship there. When you're on a refactoring team and you're the stakeholder and you completed a chunk of work, other devs are the stakeholders or you're the stakeholder or whatever. The only thing you hear is complaints because it's just expected because this is what we do for a living. And so you want to break that dynamic. One of the insidious side effects of long refactorings is that it can feel like your work is basically invisible. The sensation is compounded when you deal with the complaints of other team members about the work that you did. So basically it feels like nobody's seeing it until they're all complaining about it. Yeah. Which if you liked that, you'd be a network admin. You know, right? Like that's not, that's that we're in this career for the reasons we are mm-hmm. network admins and support people deal with the other end of that. We don't, there's a reason that they're where they are and we're where we are. We don't like that stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think they like it either very much, but they're more resilient. However, that works out. And therefore it's really important to celebrate victories intentionally because otherwise they won't be celebrated. Uh, you want to be really careful about team morale when you're shifting the code base around. Everybody needs to feel like they're part of it and that it matters. That's very true. And also, this goes back to splitting up the work to having different team members work on it so that everybody feels like they touched it and they had a part in it, too. So, guys, large refactorings are risky. Not only is it very easy to make sweeping changes that cause major problems for your application, and boy, did I understate that, but large refactorings can also derail your team for weeks or even months. I also understated that why your competition keeps moving also understated in addition if you do not manage this correctly large refactorings can really demoralize your team and create conflict large refactorings require that you manage team morale as well as the political situation outside your team however if you follow the suggestions we've given here large refactorings will be easier even though they won't necessarily be pleasant or easy Nothing makes a larger factoring easy, but there is no reason to make it harder than it has to be. 
And that pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, I just have one thing to say. Large refactorings. Large refactorings. This paragraph <laughs> needed refactoring. It didn't get it. <laughs> so there's a, you know, we were going to talk about the dangers of not refactoring. That's what happens. Yep. <laughs> BJ laughs. I'm sorry. It just, it, it reminded me of um, a certain person we were talking about earlier, but the phrase was not large refactorings. The answer was JavaScript. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah but that was funny. This wasn't. That was funny. Yeah. All right. We'll catch you guys next week. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.